How do you solve a problem like the housing crisis? It's a question politicians have been trying and failing to deal with for decades. A high-vis jacket, hard hat and trowel, all de rigueur for any politician. Their main solution so far has been turning up to building sites with hard hats on and pointing at things. David Cameron in particular has described a recent brick factory visit as one of his prime ministerial highlights. But now the government has a new housing white paper with new plans. Have they really got the answers? Or is it all talk from the top once again? To raise money for a deposit, 14% of 18 to 34-year-olds are considering living with parents, and 1 in 25 are even thinking of taking part in paid medical trials. It's very important that I think we should, uh, in government, allow people to fulfil their aspirations, and that includes to own their own home. My name's Aisha Thomas-Smith, and welcome to the Weekly Economics Podcast, where this week it's all about housing. Stay with us. So, we're doing a deep dive into housing this week, and we're lucky enough to have Neff's resident housing expert, Alice Martin, back with us. How are you doing, Alice? I'm all right. I'm getting better. You're Thanks. feeling better? Yeah. Whatever you had, you passed on to Laurie, so... Yeah. <laughs> Something in the air. I'm also joined by senior economist, Stephen Devlin. Are you well, Stephen? I'm well, Aisha. For now. <laughs> okay, so before we move on to talking about the government's housing white paper, uh, we're looking back at the biggest stories of the last seven days in a segment I like to call Wide. <laughs> Thanks. I didn't know whether to do when the crowd say, but but I didn't. I thought you guys might leave me. Yeah, we got we got the joke. <laughs> All right, cool, great. You just know what I'm doing. So, Alice, which headline from last week had you considering a career change? Um, well, this is the story. Actually, there's a couple of stories about uh, female uh, sports people who are demanding pay rises and in some cases getting them. Um, so last week, the, uh, the US national hockey team threatened to boycott the international championship this year if they didn't get a pay rise. Um, and news that broke since uh, is that female cricketers are getting a 50% pay rise um, to recognise the the kind of increased popularity of the sport and also to allow the women to treat it as a full-time job rather than just something they do on top of all the other things that they do in their life, which I think would be quite hard to be a cricketer, plus other things. I've tried it. It's hard. <laughs> really? So you were once a cricketer? No, I wish. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but I have played football um, and I've got to say I'd be more inclined to to take it seriously if I if I saw people actually being paid to do it for a living. Or women, I should say, not just so people. Does that bring their pay up equal to the men? No, not at all. And actually men got a pay rise as well of 30%. I think international male cricketers got a, a 30% pay rise. Mm. So it could just be a story more about the kind of increased popularity and financial backing of it as, as a sport. Um, but that's but not as significant. fun. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's not as positive. And it, it's interesting as well because... In a couple of weeks, um, the legislation comes in here in Britain uh, to make companies with over 250 employers, uh, employees sorry, publish their gender pay gap, um, which is a kind of, I mean, it's a, great, it's a great measure. It's good that we're doing it. It feels a bit lukewarm compared to what Iceland have just announced, mm. which is to um, make companies prove there is no gender pay gap. So not just publish the fact they have one, uh, but prove that they don't have one, which is um, exciting. No wonder all the mums are going there. 
<laughs> so, Stephen, what news of Norway? Uh, yeah, so this is the news that um, Norway has topped the rankings of the happiest countries. Um, they pipped Denmark to the post, which is classically considered the happiest country in the world. Uh, Denmark is now number two, so still pretty good. Um, yeah, the top the tops of the rankings is dominated by Scandinavian countries as usual. Um, the UK actually went up four places from twenty third to nineteenth, so bit of improvement. Um, happiness is sort of creeping up very slowly in the UK. Um, but other measures aren't aren't looking so good, like anxiety is also going up in the UK. So it's a bit of a, a mixed picture. Um, but it's, it's quite interesting. I mean, I think people think of these rankings as a sort of, you know, frivolous once a year sort of news item. Um, but they're increasingly being taken quite seriously, um, especially in the UK. We have the Office for National Statistics formally reporting on well-being and happiness. Um, and, you know, we can kind of think of this actually as an alternative to reporting on things like GDP or at least uh, an important complement. So, you know, really the only reason we're interested in GDP in the first place is because we think that's an indicator of the well-being of people in a country. So why not just skip, you know, to the end result and just actually report how happy people are feeling? Um, so the UK does okay on this measure, but not great. You'd think, you know, for such a rich country, uh, we'd be better at translating that wealth into happiness. Actually, there are uh, several countries that are poorer than us in GD GDP terms. They're actually higher up the rankings than us. So um, our economy is maybe not so good at generating happiness compared to others. You don't sound that happy today, Stephen. Mm. Oh, <laughs> Did you take part in the survey? <laughs> <laughs> no. Do I, I don't know. Do I not sound happy? <laughs> I feel perky. quite happy. Well, that's good. Did yeah. they ask you? No, they don't. Oh, right. Yeah, I don't know who they asked. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't me either. <laughs> no, I didn't get asked. All right, thanks, guys. Sajid Javid, um, it feels like we've heard this before from successive governments all tinkering around the edges trying to fix the housing market. What makes these plans any different? And at first I accept people are right to be sceptical. They've heard it before. Successive governments now for over 30 years have let people down by not building enough homes. So this week's big question, is the government's housing white paper going to solve the housing crisis? Since becoming Prime Minister last summer, Theresa May has talked a lot about social justice and looking out for the just about managings, the jams. You know, the kind of people who are struggling to hold down a job as an MP as well as editing a national newspaper <laughs> and giving lots of speeches. Like, it's just not easy. It's not easy. So one of the biggest struggles people in the UK face is finding somewhere decent that they can afford to live. Britain has been in the midst of a housing crisis since all of us can remember. But now the government has a white paper out called Fixing Our Broken Housing Market, where they're suggesting a number of policy fixes to deal with the country's housing woes. So has the government got the answers? Can they really fix our broken housing market? Or are their proposals too little too late? So, Stephen Devlin, we hear the words housing crisis banded around a lot in the media. Can you tell me if there is indeed a crisis? And if so, what does that mean? Well, what we mean by a housing crisis is basically that the availability of affordable housing is too low, or to put it another way, that 
um, the cost of housing is too high relative to people's incomes. So um, when you think about it like that, it's it's pretty clear that there is a, a housing crisis. Um, it's something like um, the average mortgage is about um, four times uh, someone's salary. Um, most people are, are who are renting are paying you know more than half of their wages on rent. So um, it's clear that that housing is. Um, extremely expensive in this, in this country uh, compared to others. So on that basis, there's quite an extreme housing crisis and by a lot of measures, it's getting worse. Um, but there are there are a lot of reasons for that. You know, partly you might think it's because um, there's not enough supply of housing. Um, you know, a lot of people argue that we should be building more houses. Um, but that, that could be true, but equally to some extent, it's about the demand for housing as well. So the reason why... Um, prices uh, go up is because there's a sort of excess demand for housing. You know, um, house, houses in this country are basically an investment vehicle for rich people. And there's a lot of foreign ownership of, of housing, a lot of sort of uh, non-residency in, in houses. So that's a big part of the problem as well. Um, the other element to the crisis is not just about quantity, but about quality. So we also have a particularly poor housing stock in the UK. Um, for example, in terms of um, insulation, we have one of the worst insulated housing stocks in Europe. Uh, that has implications for uh, you know, how much energy we have to use. Um, it has implications for people living in fuel poverty. Um, so there's, there's many aspects to the crisis, but by any measure, there is a crisis. Yeah, and and just to add to that, because um, it, it can feel a bit weird when we talk about a crisis for so long, because you start to think, mm. you know, how can a crisis, isn't this just the norm? Isn't this just how we do housing now? Um, but it really is a ticking time bomb. And, you know, there are loads of measures that you can put out there, loads of stats you can put out there on, you know, homelessness rising, overcrowded housing, people in overcrowded homes, um, increases increasing in numbers um and there are you know there are these are big figures um but really what it comes down to is the kind of um security that people have um in housing is is decreasing it's poor people can't save any money because they're spending so much money on housing that's whether you're in rented housing or you've got a massive mortgage on a home that you can't afford um and people's security in the types of housing that in the past used to be um designed to give you that kind of sense of um security and, and a place that you can kind of call your own um like social housing um security there is is waning too because um yeah, contracts are changing and, and there's kind of changes happening all over the place that are stripping away people's um, control over the, the types of homes um, that they're living in and, and the prices that they're paying. Um, so it, it is a crisis that people are living through day to day um, and we shouldn't get weary of, of, of the, the name. Okay, so, so with all that going on, uh, surely it's a good thing that the government's kind of turn their, turning their attention to this right now. Um, as we said, they've released a, a white paper um, called Fixing Our Broken Housing Market. Alice, can you tell us what exactly is a white paper, first of all, um, and what does this one look like? Um, yeah, so a white paper is, is just a kind of uh, proposal of some big policy changes or just some changes that the government wants to make. So it's like their first... Um, 
step really into changing legislation. Um, so then people kind of comment on it and respond, and then it will go through the Houses of Commons and Commons and the House of Lords, um, and eventually it will form a new law of sorts. Um, so this white paper is one of many housing white papers um, that doesn't really propose much change. Um, so I'm sorry to say I, I can cover some of the stuff that's in it, um, but there's nothing really juicy. Um, what is juicy about it is the rhetoric that it uses. So um, it really sets out acknowledging that the housing market is completely broken in this country. And it almost feels like some really great conversations went on feeding into this paper, acknowledging the fact that this housing market is broken and then completely backing away from actually writing up any of those suggestions that I imagine would have come in those conversations. Um, so just to give a couple of examples, there's an acknowledgement that um, a kind of dogmatic obsession with home ownership is has not worked. It hasn't fixed anything. Um, you know, the home ownership's at record low levels. People are paying more and more um, to become homeowners. It's not paying off over the long term for those people that actually do manage to become homeowners. Um, and the government's acknowledged this um, by improving standards for renters or, or talking more about renters in this paper. Um, so they reiterate the plan to get rid of letting agency fees, um, which is good. It's you know it's a good move. Um, some say it's fairly tokenistic when landlords don't have any regulations on them in terms of how much rents they charge, um, but now letting agents will. Um, and they do also talk about a new model of housing called build to rent, which has been which is being trialled at the moment. Um, and there's some examples in London or some plans for build to rent properties in London, um, which are going out at the moment and. I think it's it's quite a scary new model. Um, it's got some good ideas behind it, um, but it's it's worrying. I can talk a bit about that if you're interested. Yeah, that'd be great. No idea what that is. So it's uh, a new form of development that is basically mass housing for renters, for private renters. Um, so you have to, every unit in the block has to be for rent and it's a way of attracting in institutional investors like pension funds to invest in house building in the UK. So it's a good idea in principle. It's recognising that, you know, more and more of us are renting now, not really through choice, but because uh, we don't have any other option. And it's it's an idea to kind of standardise some of that process um, and give renters more security. So one of the recommendations with Build to Rent is that you would have a longer lease. So rather than just having a six month or year long lease or tenancy, you might get one for two or two to three years. So that's a good thing. What's worrying about it is our normal um, housing and planning policies don't apply to it. So you might know that at the moment, all new builds are supposed to have social housing um, within them and a certain portion of affordable housing by the government's measure of affordability, which is which is widely criticised, but it exists. Um, with these new build-to-rent models, they essentially get to kind of sidestep out of that commitment. Um, so they do need to provide a portion that are uh, affordable rents, but they don't. They won't have any properties within them that are managed by a housing association or a council, which means that the kind of any affordable rented housing within them is completely at the whim of the developer that builds it. 
there's no protections. There's nothing there to say that after 5, 10, 15 years, those properties won't just be sold off to the private market anyway. Um, and that is actually in the plans of some of the, the developers um, building these, these new properties or proposing to build them. They basically plan to sell them off after 15 years. So there might be a few years of affordable rents, but after that, we completely lose that housing stock. Um, so some people are quite worried about about this new model. Others are excited. The London Mayor is embracing it. Um, so we'll have to wait and see. Okay. So with that in mind, if the government does manage to get this white paper turned into a bill and, and pushed through Parliament, do you think it will actually do anything to help solve the hi- housing crisis? Um, no, I, I, I don't think it will. That the, the things I was mentioning earlier, the kind of hints at, at some good stuff that, that could have been there and, and it kind of wasn't. Um, I think if some of that would have been in there, it could be great. So one is uh, increasing the powers of local authorities over land markets. This is talked about a little bit in the paper, but it's it's quite vague. Um, and something that would make a real difference would be if, if local authorities were able to purchase land at um, affordable values so that they could develop it or you know, go into partnership with the de- developer to put affordable homes on it. Um, this was hinted at, but I don't think it's going to happen. Um, one one exciting thing that's in it is the opening up of the land registry. Um, so you might have heard that there was a plan to privatise the land registry. Um, and actually through a kind of public campaign and, and lobbying the government um, in the paper, uh, it basically outlines the fact that rather than privatise it, we will open it up and make it usable for more people. So that's exciting. But there is uh, £3 billion in the uh, in the white paper proposed for building more houses, right? Um, it's not directly for bricks and mortar. It is for investing in infrastructure so that developers don't have to pay as much to build new houses, basically. Uh, so it, it's, it's a good thing. Investment in infrastructure is a good thing. Um, but it isn't, we shouldn't be fooled to think it's, you know, directly going into building any new houses um, via the government or via public funds, because that's, that's actually not the case at all. So, Stephen, Alice mentioned the the land registry. I don't have a clue what that is, so it'd be great if you could give us a little explainer. Um, And if you could just tell us a bit more about the role that land ownership plays in all of this. Who owns land in the UK and how does that affect housing? Yeah, so the land registry is basically um, where we record who owns land, simply. Okay. Um, So it has basically historically been very um, opaque. You can't just sort of go in and have a look and uh, find out who owns what, what land. It's also incomplete. Um, we we only know for about 80% of land or something um, who actually owns the land. And that's because um, you, on, you only have to add it to the register when it sort of changes hands. Um, so a lot of land hasn't changed hands in hundreds of years. And so it's just not been picked up on the the land registry but yeah so I mean this is kind of a weird situation right where actually we don't really know (laughs) who owns a lot of the land in the UK Uh, even the land registry doesn't know who owns all of the land but if you're a sort of just a you know average Joe on the street you certainly don't know 
you know, who owns what land. And you can't really go and and find out, um, you know, find out that information very easily. So that's why the sort of opening up of, of this land registry resource will be very important because people can, you know, in their local areas, just go straight in and, and find out who's responsible for the management of the land uh, around where they live. So that's, that's a sort of, you know, important new thing. It's, it's good for accountability and democracy, I think. Um, uh, so it it's, was a very important campaign win. How does it affect housing? I mean, it kind of obviously, I mean, houses have to be built on land. Um, so it's, it's a large determining factor of how that land gets used. So f- for one example, um, you know, owning a piece of land, there's, there's a kind of incentive to maximise the value of a development on that land. So um, if you expect um, that you're going to make more profits in the future, um, you know, from the prices having gone up, you'll just sit on the land uh, and not develop housing, even though that might be in public interest. Um, so basically, ownership of the land comes with power, um, the power to decide uh, how much housing gets built, where it gets built, um, and, and basically who can afford to access it. So is the land registry enough to, to deal with that? I mean, on its own, it's it's not going to sort of revolutionise actual land ownership. Um, but I think it does give people more tools um, to sort of hold people accountable. So, uh, you know, in the past, you might think, a particular area was being unused or, you know, developed badly and you might not have been able to find out uh, who was responsible for that. Now you can, uh, well, not yet, but if if this uh, land registry does become public, um, you will be able to find that out. Um, and, and, you know, that gives you much more power in terms of holding that person to account. So it's not going to completely change things, but I think it, it helps a lot. Yeah, I mean, there could be steps that follow from it, basically. If we can see who owns a lot of land and who's making a lot of money off that land, um, because, you know, land values are, are going up and up um, all the time. Whenever house prices go up, you can expect land prices to have gone up by an even bigger amount. And so if you own that land and you're trading in it, you are profiting from that kind of value uplift. So if we know who is who owns it, we can take steps then to work out who we think should be should have control over what's done on it so in areas where there's kind of lots of like a high need for new housing um local authorities could be empowered to kind of take control of more land um and actually develop good housing on it if we can see that that's not happening with the current owner um so i think more transparency is is a first step to hopefully uh some interesting policy change okay so it seems like, as you said, there there are a couple of opportunities to perhaps be excited about in in this white paper, but but also a few areas that we should be worried about. Um, so, if the government are missing the point here, what should they be doing instead? Um, okay, well, I've kind of got a top three uh, list of excited. things because <laughs> <laughs> hopefully someone's listening and we can do this. Um, the first one is, I think, power needs to be rebalanced between tenants and landlords. Um, that's not being done now. The, you know, the, the idea to, to cut letting agent fees is great, um, but the relationship between landlords and tenants um, needs to be changed. So one way to do that would be to improve the collective voice of renters. Um, so there are various 
efforts going on at the moment to unionise renters and, and give them that kind of coherent voice. Um, and I think that's a good thing. And I think any ways to support those kind of activities um, would actually benefit everyone um, because power imbalances in a market lead to broken markets if they're if they're kind of too imbalanced. Um, and that's what we're seeing in, in the private rented sector. Um, so that's the first. The second would be just to stop ceding all of the power that we do have well we don't have loads anyway but we're kind of giving away more and more power over how to fix the housing market by selling off public land at the moment and you've probably heard me banging on about this before but I just find it ridiculous that we have this you know big white paper about how to fix the housing market and at, at the same time we're just selling off the land that we have um, that we could be developing and, and building the types of homes that we actually want and need um, and Steve and I, and I have actually done a bit of research looking into kind of how wasteful that decision is to sell off the land. I don't know if you want to explain a bit, Stephen. Yeah, well, so we, we did a bit of analysis that basically looked at, you know, how you could um, halt a, a fire sale of a piece of public land, build some uh, genuinely affordable um, housing on that, um, and basically make the money back, um, both from, you know, from um, that development. So it's a good idea financially because you can bring in rents to local authorities who desperately need the money, um, but you can also be uh, making sure that you're taking people off housing benefit, which is a huge cost to um, to the exchequer at the moment and, you know, effectively goes straight into the pockets of landlords. Um, so th there's actually quite a strong uh, financial as well as sort of social case for just holding on to the land that we already have and using it for the purposes that we know we need it for. Yeah, I mean, it, it almost seems too easy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, also just to put in context, um, the, the three billion that you mentioned for, for house building earlier, um, we're spending, I think it's 25 billion a year on housing benefit. Just, you know, just to put that in, in some context, it's, it's crazy. By far the biggest amount of money we spend on housing is for housing benefit. It's not for building new homes or for making homes actually affordable. And then my third top idea would be to, I suppose, just reinvigorate um, housing models that are outside of the market. So at the moment... Um, Often we think of the only kind of homes that we can have are either homes that we want to own or that we might rent from a landlord or council housing. There are lots of different models that could exist there. Um, I think investment in, in public and social housing is desperately needed, but looking at different ways to develop and deliver that um, could, be, could be a great step now so we're working with a number of um community-led housing projects um that have different models for for rented and, and affordable ownership um housing that i think are, are fit for today's market um and can offer some of the things that that we're just not getting at the moment um whether it's through a lack of security with social housing or um just a lack of affordability with all other types of housing um, and can those projects be scaled up? Could they be taken to a countrywide level? Yeah, I mean, they're often criticised for being kind of niche and small and only for people that, you know, have time and interest in building their own homes. Uh, but actually, it, it doesn't have to be the case, especially because we've got so much public land ready to develop. Um, we could 
certainly look at how to scale up some of these models. Um, you might have heard us talk a little while ago about a plan for um, a development in Haringey um, where local residents have put forward a plan for a community land trust that would have uh, hundreds of new homes on it. Uh, all would be affordable, all would be in line with what the local community wants. Um, and they've, they've got a great business model to show how it could work. Great. Well, I mean, it sounds like you guys have got all the answers. You should just text them. Like, it's fine. <laughs> Send them a text. Thanks, guys, for giving us the 411 on the housing white paper. Um, again, sounds quite bleak, but quite optimistic that you guys have got, got so many great things going on. <laughs> chain reaction waiting to happen. With inflation at 2.3%, the highest since late 2013, does that mean the Brexit domino effect is actually happening? So, we're now going to have a quick chat about one of the biggest economic stories of last week, which was inflation. Um, so the rise in inflation was much higher than anyone had expected. Uh, last week with Laurie, we were talking about the ONS's new basket of hipster goods. Um, so guys, are almond milk, expensive gin and cycling helmets to blame for the increase? Uh, not exactly. <laughs> uh, if only it was as simple as that. Um, so yeah, the, the ONS has quite a difficult job. That's the Office of National Statistics. Basically, they have to every month compute... Um, how prices are changing and they have to, you know, use a measure that sort of uh, conveys people's actual experience of, of how their costs are changing. That's quite a difficult thing, actually, because you have to get the right sort of mix of products in, in a basket and then you have to be measuring that quite well. Uh, so the, there's quite a lot of controversy over, you know, what that should be measured. So that was the whole thing about hipsters. You know, actually, hipsters are more important in the economy these days, so maybe their <laughs> goods should be more reflected in the basket. Um, but what's actually driving the the change in inflation? Actually, we did expect that inflation was going to go up quite uh, significantly, but it was even more than, than economists generally thought. Um, and there are a couple of reasons for that. One is that um, commodity prices are increasing around the world. So that's things like oil um, have been going up. So that's driving up the costs of fuel in the UK. And the other reason is Brexit. So because of the uh, pretty substantial devaluation of sterling, uh, which means sterling is worth less compared to other currencies, um, that basically means that everything that we buy from other countries is much more expensive. Um, so that feeds through into general inflation. So uh, the big thing this month was that food prices have gone up uh, for the first time in years. Uh, and that's largely because we import a lot of our food. Um, so it, it's quite um, a concerning situation uh, because, you know, inflation isn't necessarily a bad thing if wages are going up more than inflation if people are sort of earning uh, more and more and, and can you know continue to meet the increasing cost of living but what we've seen is that the uh, uh, wages have failed to keep up with inflation for more than 10 years so basically people haven't had uh, a, a wage increase for more than 10 years in terms of what they can actually buy um, I think some people uh, and probably the government was hoping that this year wages would sort of just manage to outpace inflation, but it looks like that's not going to happen. Um, actually, inflation is completely eroding um, 
the increase in, in wages. So when you see that reported in the news that wages are going up, you have to always remember that, well, the question is really, is it going up by more or less than inflation? Um, so there, yeah, there's big problems, basically. Um, inflation is probably going to keep going up. Uh, that kind of has big implications for the economy as a whole, if it leads to consumers just stopping spending, you know, we could quickly see the economy grinding to a halt. Uh, so it's quite concerning numbers. Mm. So just to clarify, hipsters are not to blame. You can stop sending us your hipster hate mail no. and fancy stationery. <laughs> okay, thanks Alice and Stephen for laying down some more cold hard truths um, about housing. Um, Laurie, come back soon. We miss your soothing Celtic tones. We'll be back with more of the weekly economics podcast at the same time next week. If you've got a question for an economist, you can tweet us. We are at Neff on Twitter. We're planning an episode purely on listener questions in the future. Apparently, didn't know that. So get in touch. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to support the show, please leave us a rating or a review. It really helps other people discover the podcast. The Weekly Economics Podcast is produced by James Shield and Hugh Jordan and brought to you by the New Economics Foundation.